Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk. Producer Stephen Ray Morris here to introduce today's conversation, where Danny chats with CEO of Cook's Venture, Matthew Wadiak. It's a great conversation. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast. Today, I get to chat with Matthew Wadiak, the founder and CEO of Cook's Venture. Uh, prior to starting Cook's Venture, which I'll let Matthew explain a little bit later, he was the chief operating officer of Blue Apron, which he left in 2017. Uh, Matthew, I want to thank you for for joining me today. This Full disclosure, this is the second time we've tried to record. Matthew got caught in a rainstorm <laughs> the last time we tried. So um, I'm really happy. We're thrilled that we could find a time again because I know how busy he is. Um, but Matt, as you know, I ask everyone the same first question for the podcast, and that is, yep. what is your favorite food memory? So my favorite food memory, and I, I think this is consistent with last time we <laughs> talked, but it's when I it's when I first moved out to California, and I was a young cook just out of culinary school at uh, CIA, and um, me and uh, two of my close uh, chef friends moved out there, and our aspiration was to work at. Chez Panisse and, um, nice. you know, Paul Bertoli was recently the chef at Chez. And we ended up working for him, um, all, actually all three of us at Oliveto under, under Paul. And, um, tasting our first, uh, well, for me, tasting my first lemon cucumber and realizing that not all cucumbers taste the same. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I remember and, that. and like really understanding the cultivar and the difference between like, a well-grown piece of produce that you just sort of take for granted, even like something as simple as celery, which like is just something you'd buy in the grocery store when it's grown properly, it takes on a whole new flavor and a whole new flavor profile. The avocados out there grown from some of the smaller ranches are exceptionally different than the commercial avocados Mm -hmm. that you'll buy Mm -hmm. from Michoacan or Southern California, the tomatoes, the dry farm, early girls. Oh my God. The dry farm, early girl, tomatoes in California are so good. It's like eating a piece of candy. And I had grown a lot of tomatoes by that point, but understanding really that food that's cultivated from well cared mm-hmm. for, for soil and animals that were raised with care um, for the first time, that there's an actual huge impact, not only from a flavor difference and, and, and just like burning that into my brain. Yeah. Uh, but also from like a, a, a social difference because in addition to working, you know, at the restaurant and eating those foods, a lot of us as cooks would go out and work on the farms in the weekend and we met folks like Bill Nyman and we went to right. McAvoy Ranch to pick olives and we would go to Dirty Girl Farms and harvest beans. Nice. And we just get together and do cool things like that. And seeing the social impact of that kind of work, you know, the early days of like River Dog and, and, um, you know, uh, full belly farms. And mm-hmm. I guess it wasn't their early days, but for us, it was still early compared to what it is today. Like those farms were in their prime and the movement out there really changed the way I think a lot of America thinks about food. Sure. And they're certainly my first and strongest food memories. That's not my first, but the strongest. No, no, no. And that's totally cool. That's such a great way to sort of start this conversation because I feel like what you're doing with Cook's Venture is, you know, you know, putting into action that passion for real food that is produced in a really um, thoughtful way, both socially and environmentally. So can you explain to folks what Cook's Venture is and, and why you decided to, to start it, you know, at, at, at this point? Like, why, why was now the time to do this? 
Yeah. Well, I guess a few things, you know, it's interesting, like the evolution of any company, when you think about how companies emerge and they never really just come out of the woodwork and there's always like that long story behind it. So, you know, it's like somebody who's like, you know, you ask any business person or entrepreneur who's successful and it's like, oh yeah, the overnight 30 year success story, right? Right. And Cook's Venture is a similar story in that, you know, I started out um, with a passion for cooking when I was really young as a kid, really just watching shows like Galloping Gourmet and Man Can Cook and, and Julie Childs and, then, you know, started cooking in the kitchen and got a job at a restaurant at a young age and went to TIA and, um, you know, kind of came forward to uh, work in restaurants after that and started a food company and then started Blue Apron. And really at, at, at Blue Apron, um, well, before Blue Apron, really, like my, my first rendition of, of Cook's Venture actually started about a decade ago mm. when I started sourcing foods from different parts of the world and really getting into ingredients and growing tomatoes and you know, just trying to be more active, but without the knowledge that I have today and and kind of taking my, a first path at the supply chain industry, <clears throat> realizing that there were issues with it. So when I, I linked up with my co-founders of Blue Apron, you know, one of the really important things um, for our company that was, you know, built into my DNA by then was that we needed to manage our supply chain and start working with farmers to promote the kind of food that I had kind of become addicted to, but couldn't find. And, you know, as a chef working, a very influential moment in my career is when I was a cook working overseas in Italy. And Mm -hmm. the cost of really great ingredients in Italy and in France and all the markets that I went to, La Bucaria in Barcelona, was like really reasonable. And I was shocked at how cheap um, and, well, cheap isn't the word, affordable, good quality ingredients were not realizing that input substitutions increase the cost of food. They don't decrease it. And people who are growing foods more naturally can actually make better income on farm and also serve the community with better quality ingredients. So it shocked me that when I came back and was in New York and just going to the farmer's market, there are great farmers in the farmer's market. But because of the the cost of agriculture in America and some of the obstacles that we're up against, and we don't have the the transportation mechanism that we that, that they have in Europe. We don't have the sales channels that they mm-hmm. have in Europe that are a little bit more industrialized for, for good and not for, you know, the wrong reasons that lower the cost of goods to consumers in different parts of the world and develop a food culture that's centered around regionally centric localish cuisine. And I say localish because, you know, you look at the local movement in the U.S. and how people think about hyper-local foods uh-huh. and the local movement of foods that's emerged over millennia in, in different parts of the world. People actually focus more on locale and regionally specific yeah. ingredients and they move food around beyond, within countries, but they create a dynamic of a local food economy that yeah. kind of works nationally or within, within you know, regions. And starting to understand that and build that into the sort of, you know, BA, the Blue Apron supply chain in a larger way, because we, we just didn't have access to the kind of food that I wanted to serve our customers, yeah. that I was proud to serve our customers, um, became really significant to me. Like, you know, a, a good example of that is like, when you look at lemons, you want to get like great lemons. You're not growing lemons in the Northeast. You're not growing le- lemons in Iowa. There's like a place to grow lemons. There's a place to grow garlic. There's a place to grow cattle. There's a place to grow chickens. There's a place to grow lettuces. So 
there's a there's a place and a locale for everything, and I I kind of ripped that off from Bill Nyman, one of my greatest friends, and yeah, one of the the, the smartest people in food that I know. For so sure. don't focus so much on like super local for everything you buy. Focus on locale and supporting local economies. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, the carbon impression associated with that is actually beneficial too, because you're not trucking in inputs, you're not trucking in you know like substitutions for to enrich your soil or your animals or or you know, whatever you're growing, you're actually creating the best possible food economically and and from an environmental standpoint. So, you know, doing that in scale and creating that economy in scale that sort of mimics um, anthropological traditions that we know and, and can follow mm-hmm. and have been modeled out for hundreds and thousands of years is, is it was sort of the intention of the business. And in, in Cook's Venture, after I left Blue Apron, I really wanted to double. I'm super passionate about food and about supply chain and about building economies of scale for better food and supply chain. And my feeling was the best way to do that was to focus on the world's most consumed food, which is chicken and is the most impactful for not just chicken. What, what people don't really fully appreciate is when you're eating um, a monogastric animal like a chicken with one stomach or a pig, or when you're eating cattle, you're supporting the foods that they eat. Right. In the case of cattle, you're supporting permanent pasture. And, the, and, and when you're eating chicken, you're supporting the millions and millions of acres of land that we grow crops on every year. You're eating what the, the food eats. So it was really important for me to start at a point where we could affect husbandry, eating quality, land, and then also focus on the environmental issues that are really important today, like carbon sequestration, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, creating more biodiversity in our lands, creating healthier soil, and also better social impact so farmers can get paid for for their work. You know, the yeah. recent farm census showed that only uh, less than half of American farmers are, are are making any profit whatsoever. So this is that yeah. was the origin. That was a long answer. No, no, no. And I mean, so you have. You, there are a couple of things. Like one, you have farmers who are not making any money; they're going out of business. So it's clear that the the food system and the agriculture system in this country needs to change. And then, you know, going back to what you said before, you you know, in in places like Europe, there's this affordability of good food, of of socially responsible food, of environmentally responsible food that that doesn't exist here. So how do you sort of, um, you know, combine those two things, making sure that farmers are are, you know, compensated well for what they're doing to, you know, not only feed people, but to protect the environment and, and support rural economies, but also provide, you know, w- with the chickens that you're raising, provide, you know, a, a really affordable product that that tastes delicious. How, how do you reconcile those two things? So I think that consumers feel powerless. And it is unfortunate because if you take most individuals aside, and you ask them, do you want to eat better quality food if it costs you just a few cents more? Almost universally, people would say yes. And we're not talking about like going to the farmer's market and spending like 120 bucks on a few tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like, you know, would you spend, you know, five cents more per pound on chicken? Would you spend, you know, two cents more per pound on your beans or even the same price for better quality food? And universally, people would say yes. I think we have an industrialized system where one of the biggest issues is the gatekeepers. So local gatekeepers who are barriers to entry in the food system are, you know, people who are buyers or traditional buyers who are maybe commission based in large food companies, um, 
food companies underestimating the consumer, focusing on uh, lowest cost of goods and not realizing that consumers are actually interested in, in better quality food because traditionally um, they've done things a certain way and you can't disrupt the way things have been done for so many years. And that sort of fear that uh, some corporations and some gatekeepers yeah. who are the buyers have into investing in that food economy. And the, I'll tell you something, the, the, the consumer is not to be underestimated. People want better food. People care about better food. And um, even subliminally, people know when they're eating something better you know, in an unconscious way sure. and they can, you can, you can absorb and feel that in the meal and in the experience of cooking great food um, with the people that you care about. So yeah. I think that's the answer is creating an anthropology of, yeah. of food in, in our culture and making decisions around your dinner table, because that actually does hugely impact decision makers. And the more vocal you are about that, the more that people can go on social media and say, we want to have true pasture-raised right, chicken, right. not this free-range stuff that grows up well, in confinement can, with 20,000 other birds. Can you, you know? talk about that? Because I think people are really confused because we have listeners who are like, I've been buying organic antibiotic-free chicken. Isn't that just as good as what you know Matthew's talking about? So can you explain sort of the greenwashing that's involved with sort of what you've seen at grocery stores or on you know restaurant menus and what you're trying to do? Because you know when you were when you were interviewed, I guess about a month ago now in the Washington Post, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, phrased it as you're, you're doing these world-changing chickens. Why are these world-changing? Yeah. Well, there's a few reasons, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm also happy for the plug. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, over 99, almost anything that you can buy at a normal grocery store, like 99-plus percent of chicken that's labeled free range or organic or anything along those lines is essentially commercial confinement based chicken um, that comes from, you know, one of two large companies, uh, Cobb, which is the, the, the breeding house of the chicken and then Aviagen Hubbard. So those are the two big genetics companies and the genetics companies are companies that breed chickens and sell eggs to big companies like, you know, Tyson and Purdue and Pilgrim's Pride and Simmons and, those companies can then um, put their labels um, on third-party organizations. It could be like 365 mm-hmm. Chicken in a grocery mm-hmm. store. It could be, you know, like, uh, you know, any you name any brand of chicken in any grocery store, and it could be on that brand. You don't have to name the actual source of the chicken. So you have basically all of the chicken in America – coming from the genetic strains of, of two basic big giant companies. One of them is owned by Tyson and the other one is an independent uh, company that sells to almost every other poultry company. So what you're buying is into a system of chickens that are uh, bred. And there's been a lot of press about spaghetti meat chicken and thick chickens and fast growth chickens. You're buying chickens that are bred to convert their, their feed, which is basically corn and soy based feed into muscle super, super, super fast to the detriment of their bone health, mm-hmm. their organ health, mm-hmm. their livability. Mm-hmm. Almost everything um, in terms of growing these animals has been bred out of them at, in terms of what they should be represented right. as animals and, and, and also how they're grown, the conditions. So an or- the only difference really between an organic chicken and a conventional chicken 
is the feed that it eats. And oftentimes organic quote unquote feed, um, isn't tested and it's imported often from overseas. Yeah. It doesn't support American agriculture. And there was a big article, I think, in the New York Times about, um, falsification of organic feed, which mm-hmm. anybody can Google and look up. We're talking about hundreds of millions of pounds of falsified organic feed coming into the U.S. God. every single year. And the chicken houses that are the, those organic chickens are grown in are often based on supply and demand, just used for conventional houses right. or organic houses. Right. I've been to And those. so they might yeah. have a door on them, you know, where the chickens can, can quote unquote go outside. Yeah. But I can tell you how many chicken houses that are organic that have a screw in the door, keeping the chickens indoors mm. because they get a better feed conversion when the chickens are, are locked inside with heat lamps because when it's warm inside the chicken house and they're eating feed constantly and they can walk just barely from the feed to the water back and forth yeah. in these giant confinement houses, that's an organic chicken. That is a organic free range chicken yeah. that you'll buy for a premium at the grocery store. There is absolutely no difference between that especially with falsified feed and a conventional chicken. It's so infuriating to somebody like me, like who's in someone like you, we've both been in this business a long time of, you know, caring about the food Mm -hmm. system and it's infuriating that they're using the organic label to, to have something that is so, you know, against everything that is, you know, what sustainable agriculture means. It's, it's infuriating. It should be, it should be infuriating for every customer in America who's paying like an extra $2 a pound at the grocery store and is eating a conventional chicken. And I, I can tell you, it's not only on um, like the whole chicken they're buying, it's all the chicken products, the chicken nuggets, the chicken tenders, the, the chicken burgers, all of that stuff is all coming from the same places. And, you know, some of that is not even coming from known origin because on further processed goods, you don't even really know the original source of the product in right. most cases. So you have even more, uh, a further step of greenwashing. So, you know, like we, we have a real crisis in terms of poultry, which is the most eaten food in America and, um, and the way it's labeled in our country. And I think that consumers at least need to know that when they're buying a free range chicken, that only means that the chicken basically is you know, in a confinement barn along with a bunch of other, you know, tens of thousands of other chickens. That, that's all that means. And every, and, and there are organic standards saying the chickens should have outdoor access. Right. But, you know, there's so many rules and ifs and buts, like under this temperature and if it rained and if this happened, what that ends up meaning is that the farmers essentially never open their doors or on very, very rare occasions. And even if they were to open their doors, because of those breeding problems within within the actual breeds of the birds, the birds can't even get up and walk to go outside, yeah. even if you even if you want them to. So that's how that's how sick these birds are. Can you describe how your chickens are raised? Can you give everyone a sense? Well, so we know the bad part, sure, right? We, yeah. So yeah. what's different? We, we have our chickens are a three way cross of uh, two heritage breeds and an heirloom breed, which are breeds that came uh, before. Uh, the green wave in agriculture. So all, all breeds that started before the 1960s, uh, one of them dates back to uh, sort of Renaissance Europe. Um, if you, it's called the Transylvanian Naked Neck, and it, it goes back to sort of like, you know, Renaissance Italy as of today. Um, another one is the Delaware breed, which is a, a, a breed that is sort of, you would classify it as a... It, 
uh, heritage breed that is almost endangered and, and not really in common breeding use anymore, mm-hmm. but it was very popular in the 1920s and uh, through the 1940s. And then our third is a proprietary family breed. My, my partner, uh, Blake, um, comes from a, a pedig- pedigree, pun intended, of, <laughs> of poultry growers that um, had a line of, of, of different kinds of birds, and one of them dates back to um, the 1940s. Um, and we, we cross these breeds to look for uh, certain things. We look for immune system and, and health um, in, in our naked neck birds, in our uh, Transylvania naked necks. We look for, um, in our Delaware breeds, their laying ability, because traditionally it was a dual-purpose bird for, mm-hmm. and for laying. And we look for virility, strength, body conformation, and fertility in, in our uh, line of our proprietary breed. And um, by crossing those breeds through uh, great grandparents, we were the we're actually the only um, breeding program. When I say genetics, I mean breeding. I don't mean genetic engineering. So we're the only genetics company in America that's independent outside huh. of those two, Cobb and Aviagen Hubbard. Okay. Nobody else has a, a genetics program in the country uh, other than us. And we take that. these, yeah, we take these great grandparents. Uh, uh, birds, we select them into grandparent birds. We select those into parent birds, and our parent birds then mate and lay eggs. And um, those are the birds that are our broilers. And by selectively um, breeding them, we get what's called F1 vigor, which leads to a really healthy broiler that's predictable, that's good eating quality, that has all of the attributes of uh, the sort of uh, parents and, and uh grandparents and great-grandparents, and then we can select in the great-grandparent line how to affect the broiler line down the road. And this is something that's really important and kind of difficult to understand. It took me a little while to wrap my head around it mm-hmm. when I was first learning about chickens. But um, when we talk about great-grandparents and grandparents, the analogy I like to use is back to the future. Mm-hmm. So you know when, like, Marty McFly is, like, when, like, Buzz starts dating his mom, he's looking at that picture and he starts disappearing from the picture mm-hmm. in real time. Mm-hmm. So we're able to do, like, back to the future in chicken. So almost, you know, in real time as we're selecting the great-grandparents and they're laying eggs and creating the grandparents and they're selecting the parents, within, you know, just, you know, a couple years, we're able to see changes in the broiler line. So wow. we're, we always have the great grandparents. It's not like they existed before, like people, like before us. It, we can actually change them in real time and then select for traits like color feathering, strength in the legs, better immune system, better health, more uh, interest in the outdoors, um, things like that. So that nice. we can create a healthier bird that is acting like um, the ancestral bird which is, is in Latin called the gallus gallus, which is the wild jungle fowl. Yeah. People don't realize this, but the chicken is actually, a, it's not a pasture bird. Chickens are actually jungle fowl, and the gallus domesticus, which is its sort of ancestor that we eat today and consume for food, um, should represent some of the traits, just like we as people have, you know, things that, that we do. We care for our young. We like uh-huh. to hold our babies in a certain way. There's, there's certain things that we've adapted and evolved over time. The Gallus domesticus should want to go outside and forage and go into the woods and seek cover. And, you know, they, they, they don't like to be in a barn all day. They don't like to just also be on pasture. They like sure. to be under the shade of trees, under cover, outdoors, forging, going, scrounging around in the, the grass and the dirt and the trees and the leaves for stuff. 
And that's what we do. So we, we let our chickens out with unrestricted access every single day. The birds go out as long as it's above 40 degrees, which mm-hmm. is um, in Arkansas most days of the year. Mm-hmm. And um, they go out and they roam and they forage through the forest on our, our farms and our contract grower farms. And then indoors inside the housing, we have perch for all of the birds. Uh-huh. We put in hay bales. We hang fresh herbs. We, um, we create an environment for the chickens that's comfortable for them and that makes them safe. And they go out, they go out every morning on their own when we open the doors and they actually come in every, people don't realize this about chickens, but I can have 9,000 chickens from a house go out in the morning and then they'll all take themselves back in. Right. And if one or if, yeah, if one or two doesn't come in, then it will nest down in the woods and it will come in in the morning. Sure. I mean, I think people don't get that this is, you know, you've provided this really great history of, of chickens and sort of, you know, how, you know, how they're supposed to behave. And, and what we've done to chickens in these confinement facilities is we've made them act unnaturally. So you're just sort of bringing them back to their natural behaviors, which is so cool and interesting. Yeah. That well, the whole natural instinct has been bred out of the modern right. conventional bird, and that's that's why we call our bird an heirloom bird, and 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 an heirloom bird or an heritage bird needs to exhibit the traits of you know the gallus part of the gallus. Yeah. it can't be it can't be just a, a bird that's a couch potato that goes from the feet to the water <laughs> right. line and has a, a rubber hose leg that can't even support oh, it. Oh, so sad, right? So, like, as a chef and as someone who cares so deeply about food, like you do. Uh, can you can you sort of explain the flavor profile and how people react when they eat this chicken compared to the chickens that they've been eating for you know their whole lives? Yeah, well, that was something that was really really important to uh, Blake and Richard when they cultivated the line, and it's really important to me too as a chef. So I got involved in this company because I was a customer of them first. Uh-huh. So first and foremost, my my chef, uh, um, you know, like I guess. Uh, taste profile led me to this bird because it was the best tasting bird around. And I had, by the the time I, I met Blake had been to, you know, a couple hundred different chicken houses and had seen all kinds of ways of raising poultry from the very like heritage, like very small scale operations that only raise a couple dozen to, you know, a couple hundred chickens to really big uh, environments that claim to be pasture raised. But I can tell you like, you know, when you only have two or three or 12 chickens outside and there's 14,000 chickens in a house or 30,000 chickens in some of these houses and none of the birds are going outside even though the doors are open. And then I went to Blake's place and all of a sudden he opened up the doors in the morning and there's thousands of chickens going outside. I mean, literally more than three quarters of the chickens outside right away in the morning and then mm-hmm. throughout the day in and out all day long. So seeing that really led me to that and really led me to um, understanding that this is totally different. And one of the, the things that was important for them was the flavor profile. So if it doesn't taste good, like everything that we're doing isn't actually valuable in terms of how we can affect the husbandry of the animal, how we can affect the environment. So they they really bred a bird that um, has it, – it tastes like a chicken – but it doesn't have any of the detrimental things that you think of as being negative in mm-hmm. chicken. Like um, everybody knows about the spaghetti meat thing that's, that that we're talking about. If you don't know it, Google it. Spaghetti meat chicken. There's like uh, like probably 50 articles about it now. It's from the muscles being overgrown from the chickens growing too quickly, and the meat has a rubbery spaghetti-like consistency. There's also something called, something called green uh, green t- green tender or green muscle syndrome, where 
the, the chicken breast becomes so big so fast, it cuts off blood supply. And it actually, the, the muscle, the tender, which is underneath the breast anatomically in the chicken, starts to die and mm. atrophy and turn green. Almost like you're sitting on your hand for like two days and your hand so starts gross. to turn blue. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, a number of other diseases, white striping or conditions, I should say. Uh, white striping where the collagen just builds up throughout the chicken breast and you bite into it. And it's like, again, it's like eating a rubber hose. So there are all these conditions which are like malformations from overbreeding and genetics and misbreeding to overproduce um, weight and yield in chicken to the detriment of the health of the animal mm-hmm. and, and the consumer. So our chicken doesn't have any of those issues, but it also isn't the extreme where it tastes, you know, like some of these heritage birds are great um, chickens for breeding purposes. But if you're going to eat, like, for example, a really old, like, Plymouth Rock, which is like a, a breed of heritage chicken, or even a pure-line Delaware, mm-hmm. you might find that, you know, a 100-day Plymouth Rock chicken would be a little gamey and the leg meat and the thigh meat would be like, if you didn't braise it for like two hours, it would almost be difficult. Like some of the restaurants that serve those chickens. And I, I like the flavor of those birds. Don't get me wrong. And they're wonderful chickens, but they're so hard to cook that they're inaccessible to, to most customers. So when we set out to, to create our program, it was really creating a, a cultivar of bird. That's an heirloom bird from those pedigrees but that is tender from a muscle quality standpoint and also has great husbandry. So what we had to do to do that was was through the breeding stock and through selecting the right kind of great-grandparents and grandparents and parents, we build a curve of the chicken that's different. And so when our chickens are, are young, they put on their bone system, their immune system, their skeletal health, and their ability to go outside and be really active early in their life. So when you look at our chickens at like 35 or 40 days compared to a conventional bird, they look like skinny teenagers, <laughs> like they're like pole vaulters or like track runners, yeah. you know, yeah. they're just running around they're skinny and, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. And our, our farmers might say, man, what the heck's going on? These chickens are too skinny. We're not, you know, we're not going to have any bird to sell. But what happens is, you know, we have uh, epigenetic trigger that kind of is like flipping on the light switch, which is like a teenager, you know, they hit 18 and they fill out, you know, our chickens fill out at the last part of their life, but only after they've used that feed to convert into bone density and an immune system and skeletal frame right, right. and overall health. So you folk, you can only do so many things in a bird genetically at a certain point in its, in, in its life. So by focusing on the right things first, then you put on the weight, the bird can then support the weight mm-hmm. of um, the extra meat because it has a strong frame, because it's a hardy, big-boned bird. So that allows us to create what you call in the industry body conformation, which is like um, it looks it looks more or less like a regular chicken that you buy in a grocery store. The meat is a little bit more uh, – because it has more blood vessels and more, uh, more actual mo- more muscle cells per chicken – you don't get any of those really stringy, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, spaghetti meat kind of fibers. Tough, yeah. It's a fi- it's a finer texture, and that's the first thing you notice. And it tastes more like um, the flavor profile. I'd describe it as umami, you yeah. know, like uh, like soy or, or, you know, I don't want to put people off who don't like mushrooms. But it just kind of resonates in their mouth a little bit more yeah. without being gamey. And it tastes, it tastes like chicken. I mean, it tastes like a chicken should taste without any of the flaws. 
so, so basically it's yeah. it's just good. So yeah, interesting. So I guess people who, you know, are listening are probably thinking, that all sounds great. That's awesome. I'm really impressed. But what's the price? Like, how much is this going to cost me? Can you talk about yeah. how you're able to price these, again, in a way that's, you know, good for farmers, good for the consumer, good for the environment, et cetera? So the main problem with a lot of agriculture isn't actually the cost of growing the agriculture. Our, our chickens do cost uh, more to grow because they obviously live longer and we have better quality feed and better quality environment for them. However, our livability is also higher. So mm. our livability is 97 to 98%. Damn, and by commercial standards, it's like 92%. And some some farms that are in the lower end are in the 80s. So having more livability helps with the cost from a yield perspective. Yeah. And that offsets some of the over the feed pricing. And then the biggest cost to consumer is actually the variable cost associated with processing, you know, live animals and processing food in general and, and waste. So because we're vertically integrated not only into our breeding program and our hatchery and we have a great relationship with our milling partners and our farmers and, you know, and our growers, we're able to, to manage our costs on, on that end of things, but by processing our own chickens, um, if we were going to co-process our birds, it might cost us three or four dollars per chicken to process our birds, but we can provide quality jobs at really great social living wages to communities in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. We're right on the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma who really need those jobs, who really need, and we're actually in the Oklahoma quality job. We qualify for Oklahoma quality jobs mm. because we pay above a certain wage. And that allows us to process our birds and scale. And scale is really the, the secret. So good husbandry and then managing the, the bird up through um, the processing, the initial primary processing of that bird, then bringing it into an environment where we can, you know, cut it up and package it and, and turn it into a consumer, you know, food that people can enjoy in a way that's economically efficient versus cutting one, one chicken at a time. You know, if you're a small farmer and you're just processing a couple hundred birds, you've got to, you've got to consider your feed cost, which uh-huh. you're already paying a premium on. You've got to consider your processing costs, which you're probably doing yourself. You've got to consider in driving those, that small number down to, um, to the market and paying somebody to stand in the market to sell your chicken. Now you've got a $40 chicken. Now for us, we're able to do, you know, all of the, those things the right way in terms of supporting our growers and supporting the community and creating quality jobs. But because we have the scale, because we're vertically integrated, um, our chicken is, for example, it's currently selling for three ninety nine on Fresh Direct, uh-huh. which is not even their highest priced chicken. Right. You know, we're sort of like in the the top middle tier of chicken, but it's comparable to what you buy in a, a grocery store, sort of in the the middle high end of a bird. But you know, it's all about driving that scale and su- supporting the local community through um, supply chain efficiency. Right. And and. Within that, we, we also pay our growers, which is worth mentioning. We grow a lot of the chickens on our own farm. And then any growers that are near us who want to participate in our program get paid almost twice the industry average for uh, growing chickens for us without all of the capital um, yeah. improvements that are required by other poultry companies. So people who have existing housing, we're like, don't upgrade your housing. Cut big holes in the side of your housing, in fact, with the saws all put in some nice ramps, put in some beautiful clear curtains uh-huh. and create an outdoor environment through landscaping, which costs nothing right. to other than, other than hard work 
that that will allow your chickens to thrive outdoors. That's what we're looking for is spending less money, not more money, and yeah. getting the farmers to keep that money. Very cool. I, I want to turn back to the environmental sort of aspects of this uh, for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is maybe is my second to last question because I know we're running short on time. But, you know, when, when I was reading about Cook's Venture and one of the things that, you know, sort of stuck out for me is, you know, not just the commitment to environmental sustainability. You know, any company can kind of say that. But I like that you're mm-hmm. partnering with a couple of different nonprofits that I also admire. And, you know, I think it's uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, mm-hmm. Rodale, the Rodale Institute, and then the Savory Institute. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about mm-hmm. sort of how that how that developed, why you chose those three orgs, and, yeah. and why that's important? Sure. Well, Trent, Trent Hendricks, who's a good friend of mine and um, has been very helpful from the Savory Institute, is somebody who um, has been uh, really useful in helping us identify uh, how to better manage our land with our, specifically our feed providers and looking at how to integrate animals and better crop rotations into feed and measure, measuring our soil testing through, uh, better agronomy. So this is year zero for us. We're going on to all of our different, um, each individual feed, uh, farm that goes into our feed mix and we're integrating different crop rotations like lupin, um, uh, lentils, mm. uh, hemp, which is now, uh, traditionally was, um, in some feed formulations up to 30% of poultry feed and is a, a great feed alternative and, and soil alternative for chickens. And, um, uh, he'll, he'll be integral into helping us manage that program. And then I worked for, um, or, or with, um, uh, a woman, uh, named Allison Garum at Blue Apron for over five years, who was the former director of the Rodale Institute. And we have a lot of respect for the work they, they've done in terms of their uh, 40-year crop report, their um, all of the recent publications, which are on, listed on our website um, under what is regenerative. We have a whole press, a whole page of like different press press links. Um, John Foley from Project Drawdown talking yeah. about carbon. You know, just having conversations with with him and and getting an understanding of the, the different social impact and environmental impact solutions that he's working on, and of course. Uh, Ricardo Salvatore, who I've known for, for many years nice. at Union of Concerned Scientists and his literature and, and talks, which are also on our website. Um, you know, along with, uh, there's some great people there who are involved in, uh, soil science and crops. Uh, Marcita Longay is another great example of a person from Union of Concerned Scientists who is really a thought leader and maven in the industry. So getting feedback and having dialogues with all of those different folks, um, over, uh, the many years I've been involved in agriculture and having continued conversations in the future. And instead of pushing back on their feedback, really listening to them, taking their feedback and administering that into scientific pr- principles that can create um, agroeconomic stability to create more, more revenue and profit for farmers by creating crop rotations that are more biodiverse and require less synthetic inputs, therefore lowering the cost of production while also creating the right nutritional balance for birds. So if you're able to create a crop rotation, for example, where, you know, 95 or 100% of your crops in rotation in various parts of your field is growing to meet the nutritional needs of a single source um, monogastric animal like our chickens, then now you have high utilization of your land. And through high utilization of your land, you can get paid more without having to go through intermediaries as a single farmer. 
So that's part of the problem with the cropping system in our country is we, we basically grow these commodity crops and then we, you know, send them off for ethanol production, which is about 40% of America's corn, or for cattle, which are ruminant animals that should be living on permanent pasture anyway. Sure. So we should be focusing a, a lot more on biodiversity on land through crop production that is specifically nutritionally um, formulated by rotation to, to meet the needs of the monogastric animal, which is the highest use of, or for human consumption directly, which is the highest, highest valuable use of land in America. So all of this talk around not having enough food by the year 2050 when the world's population grows, which is like, you know, every other article that I read about, like, you know, the food system is complete, you know, nonsense when you consider that we throw away through ethanol and cattle feed half of America's largest crop, corn. Absolutely. And maybe if you can just answer this sort of quickly, I mean, this waste issue is one that's really important. And, and, you know, people are very used to just eating, you know, certain parts of chicken, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. a a roast chicken. Can you talk about why it's, you know, what your hope is that consumers will eat more of the chicken and sort of, you know, do a sort of a beak, beak to foot kind of approach when they're when they're eating your chickens? Yeah, eat the whole bird. I mean, that's it plain and simple. Like, Look, the, the dark meat is delicious, and um, there are some fallacies around the nutrition of chicken. Actually, we did an independent study with the University of Arkansas and found that because our chickens are pasture-raised and are a healthier breed, our omega-3s and our, our chicken are actually higher than conventional chicken, um, even even though, um, you know, it's chicken for chicken. It, the environment that an animal lives in affects very much the quality of the fat. So a lot of people are afraid of the skin and the fat in the chicken. But if you have an animal that's well-raised, whether it's beef, cattle, or pork, or chicken, if they grew up in a pasture environment and are eating more celluloid material, grasses, thriving off the land, they're going to be nutritionally more dense yeah. by nature. Because as as Bill and Savarine said, um, his actual quote was, take me to your kitchen and I'll show you who you are, but people know it as you are what you eat. Right, right. And chicken, chickens are no exception to that. <laughs> That's great. So if people want more information, where should they go to find more about your company? So go to our website, cooksventure.com. That's C-O-O-K-S-V-E-N-T-U-R-E.com. And explore it a little bit. Look at some of the press on the website, but especially look at the What is Regenerative page mm-hmm. where we lay out. We have a video on the, the website where we talk about the basic kinds of animals and plants in the food system. We have some documentation about that, and then we have a whole slew of supporting um, articles and videos and books that you can really dive into, and they're really entertaining, they're really fun, and you can really get, get into like a, just a funnel of knowledge just by exploring that information and learning more. I'm certainly not the only person who's interested in regenerative agriculture in America. There's a movement. There are hundreds and thousands Absolutely. of people behind this movement including people like yourself. So thank you for having me you know, on, on the show and, and, and being such a leader yourself. But we need to bond together as a, a social group and create a modern anthropology of food thinkers who are awake and who are spoken. I love it. I love it. Okay, so final, final questions. These are rapid fire. Yep. There's three. You just say the first thing that pops into your head, Matt, okay? Got it. <laughs> what is your favorite book? Defending Beef, Nicolette Nyman. Nice. I love Nicolette so much. That's great. Uh, who inspires yeah. you the most? Her husband, Bill. Oh, this is great. 
All right, final question. What do you do when you're not thinking about food? Is cooking food a reasonable answer? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll let you have it. You're a chef. You think about food all the time. <laughs> uh, that's fine. It's awesome. Can you give uh, your website out one more time, please? Yeah, sure. It's uh, cooksventure.com, C-O-O-K-S-V-E-N-T-U-R-E. Matt Wadiak, it was so great to talk to you. I hope to see you again soon. Thanks for all that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.